welcome to Science Sundays. Uh, Science Sundays, it's a public lecture series um, between seven centers within the College of Arts and Sciences and the Center for RNA Biology in the Co Office of Research. Um, we hope you're enjoying this year's uh, season uh, and talks and look forward to having you come in the future. We always have interesting and new things to share with you. So my name is Dan Schoenberg. I'm the former director of the Center for RNA Biology. And I'd like to tell you uh, a little bit about our center before we, uh, I introduce our director. So Ohio State has one of the largest concentrations of re researchers studying RNA, or ribonucleic acid. And you hear a lot about DNA. Uh, everyone's talking about DNA tests, DNA this and that. But RNA is actually the primordial nucleic acid. RNA, life, some people believe life began with RNA. RNA is the molecule that carries the information from the DNA in your genome into the cell in order to be translated into proteins. The machinery that actually does that translation uses RNA to catalyze the reaction. There are regulatory RNAs, and viruses, and many viruses uh, are actually based on RNA. RNA is their genetic information, and that RNA can get into the cell, and it is translated then much like the RNA in your bodies to become, make the proteins that um, your body that the virus needs to replicate and um, go and further the infection. And that brings me to today's speaker. So Jonathan Udell is chief for the Laboratory of Viral Diseases at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, where he's been since 1987. Dr. Udell has published more than 200 papers with a focus on influenza virus and the body's response to infection. I became aware of his work studying how um, defective translation of these RNAs leads to these, uh, the antigens that are then presented on immune cells um, for the reaction to uh, the viral infection. Um, Dr. Udell has received numerous awards. He is a member of the American Academy of Microbiology, and he was named a fellow of Clare Hall College at Cambridge University. At its core, Science Sundays seeks to share the excitement of scientific discovery across a breadth of disciplines. Uh, based on the size of the audience, we're clearly successful. Um, but one area we have not addressed to this date, as far as I know, is how one actually becomes a scientist. And um, how does one get the skills? How does one develop the perseverance? How does one deal with the ups and downs of this uh, to make the discoveries that we share with you? So in addition to his stellar scientific career, Dr. Udell uh, is a passionate advocate for science and for promoting and developing the next generation of successful scientists. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Jonathan Udell, who will give us a practical guide to becoming a priest of scientific Methodism. John. Well, that's a, that's a great crowd. Thank, thank you all for coming out. Uh, it's a real treat for me to give this talk. And you're, you're my guinea pigs. Uh, this is an experiment. There is no control group. We only have an experimental group because I have not actually given this talk before. So let's see if I don't screw it up. Uh, okay, so I'm going to start talking about the scientific method and why it's so important to our lives and why you as a non-scientist need to know about it. And, and this being America, I'll point out that I went on the internet to see what is available. You actually can buy a t-shirt. Scientific Methodist. It was a name I, I certainly invented myself, but someone else did as well. So I'm not trying to sell this to you as a government employee. I'm not allowed to do that anyway. Uh, but if you want a t-shirt to show your love of science, there it is. I'm sure you can find this on the web. If not, just email me. 
And, and speaking of email, uh, if you, they say there's nothing in life for free, that, that's wrong, actually. Uh, kind of a Trumpism. Here's, this is free. Uh, uh, this is a book that I wrote. I got a start when I was on sabbatical. That's why I took a sabbatical at, at Cambridge. And I wrote a book for young scientists. Um, and I also meant it for the families of young scientists and the relatives. Because as a scientist, no one ever understands what you do all day. And you try to explain it to them. And their eyes glaze over immediately. And by the time you finish graduate school, you know not to broach this subject with anybody close to you. right? But, so this is for young scientists. But if you're curious what they do, this literally will cost you nothing. Right? So it's free. It's on Amazon. If, you don't, if you're too lazy to email me, you can get this as a Kindle book. I, I also discovered the lowest price you can set for a book is 99 cents. So you will have to pay 99 cents. My part will be donated to charity. Uh, but if you just email me, I'll send you a link to a Google folder, and you can just download it as either a Mobi file or an ebook file. And if you don't know about these, you should anyway. You don't need a Kindle to read Kindles. You can just download the Kindle software. And this is a really, really nice way of reading on your, on your iPad, even your phone, but, but your computer. You can adjust the font. It, it's really beautiful. So free ebook. And one more electronic thing. Uh, you should be interested in viruses. Uh, viruses are incredibly cool. I'm not going to talk about any of the science I, I've done in my career, but at a young age, I fell in love with viruses, which I know it sounds weird because they're kind of terrible things, but th they're beautiful, they're wonderful tools, and in everyday life, they're really important. I just found out how, they're important, how important they are to dog owners. Uh, the influenza is killing lots of dogs. These viruses kill people. There is a fantastic podcast uh, run by a guy named Vincent Rankin Yellow at a Columbia University that tells you all about viruses. It's called This Week in Virology, uh, you know, a great website. And if, particularly for young scientists, if you want to hear me talk, pontificate for another hour and a half about the problems in the scientific system, which is really for people in science, so I'm not going to go into that today, it's out there on, on this TWIV. And actually, in a couple of weeks, I'm going back up to New York to do another TWIV. One of my sons, despite all of my advice, is a postdoc. Uh, and we're going to do a father-son TWIV, which I don't think they've ever done before. So that will be coming out soon. OK, so, so now to the talk. So we're going to go real basic here. Uh, can everyone see the slides? We need the lights down a little. Yeah, maybe just a little bit. Yeah, and you're, you're welcome to fall asleep, walk out, whatever you guys want to do. I will not be offended. Uh, I fall asleep during every lecture I go to. Can we put the lights down a little? Are they? No? Uh, is anyone listening? This is a proof there is no God, OK? <laughs> Which I'm not going to talk about. Yeah, OK, maybe. OK, so we're going to start from the very beginning. OK, so first, you know, I don't know how many billions, 14 billion years ago, we had the Big Bang. OK? And we'll talk about evolution, but we came out of the Big Bang, basically. Uh, but that's w way too long ago. OK? Although this is a funny slide, because we have Rodin's thinker there. Um, so the human timeline, right? It's kind of hard to read this. I just pulled this off Wikipedia this morning. But, you know, we appeared maybe 5 million years ago, okay? And Homo habilis, which is close, Homo erectus, a couple million years ago. So human beings kind of like us have been around, oh, you could argue a couple million years, and, and depending on what skull you, you're going to call completely human, at least a few hundred thousand years, okay? And, and it's likely that these guys' brains, let's imagine they're 100,000 years old, uh, it's very likely their brains, and we, we can't know this, right? We can kind of know the mutation rate of DNA, but knowing how that affects our intelligence, n nobody can know that yet. Uh, these brains are probably very much like ours. 
Okay, so why are they sitting around a fire living to 30 years old and we have the lives we do? What is this, this difference, right? So the hardware, I'm arguing, is the same. And what has changed, basically, is, is the software. And, you know, for eons and eons and many generations, the human generation back then being probably 15 years, when I was your age, things were exactly the way they are now. This is the natural state of humanity, is that nothing ever changes. Okay? The hardware is the same. It's just like any other animal. I mean, yeah, things will change as evolution goes on, as the climate changes. All that will change. And maybe one year it's, it's, it's hotter or colder or a virus comes along and that changes things. But in terms of how the people approach life, what, what they could use in their daily life, it, it didn't change. There, there was no technology in the very, very beginning. And then, you know, people started inventing things. Uh, this is a, it's a joke. Yeah, it's a joke. Uh, before the wheel, uh, we had cars, but no, uh, no, uh, no wheels. This is probably the deplorables. Um, okay, so this is a timeline of, of the first inventions, which you can read better than I can. And you can see what do we got here. You know, um, first evidence of fire millions of years ago, right? And you, you can read what happened. And things were going very, very slowly. Very slowly, I, I think one of the more interesting inventions of man, maybe not the most useful, is religion, which I think is an invention and not a discovery. And this happened maybe 50,000 years ago. And I, it's good when you give a talk like this, because you start reading about things that you, you probably should know, like this thing. When were various things invented? And I was really interested in that, actually. So how do we know that people invented religion? Well, they started burying each other. Probably some religious meaning to that. And this is really cool. Uh, this, I don't think, was photoshopped, uh, although I did take it off the web, so you always have to be careful. This is in one of the, the Lascaux cave, where they have these incredible drawings that were made 30,000, 40,000 years ago, and this sort of half animal, half human, that people are also considering the first evidence for, for a religion. And obviously, this sort of cognitive thinking uh, is a key step along the way that, that we're going, right? We inv started inventing fire, we started inventing other things. Uh, obviously, a very important one is the invention of language, which um, uh, is, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm sorry if this is sexist. I, 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 I got this line, I, you know, I thought, oh my God, they're going to think I'm sexist, but I realized it could be either way, actually, who's saying what, right? So I don't think it's really a sexist slide. So language is obviously very important, and uh, there's a raging debate when language began and what we consider language, but we're probably talking 100,000-ish years ago. Right? So we got all these things. We got people, they're smart, the same brains, and they start inventing things like fire and wheels and clothing and art and religion and, and language. And it's not like nothing was invented until the scientific method. I mean, this is from Games of Thrones, so it, this is fictional. But people did start making some really cool things, right, as of the pyramids, as of 10,000 years ago. We had cities, and, you know, this is, this is the real world now. These are the the, the true seven um, wonders of the ancient world, right? So this was all pre-scientific method. So it's not like there was no progress over a million years. There was, right? And, and people were, were moving along. But the key discovery, I'm going to argue, is the scientific method. This is the most important discovery. And I'm going to attribute it to Bacon because everyone does, but that really isn't accurate. The scientific method, like every other scientific discovery, is made in incremental steps. And one of the problems of having things like Nobel Prizes is 
you tend to honor one or two or three people who everyone said made the breakthrough, and that's not the way science works. You can talk to any scientist, they'll tell you in their own field, all of us know Nobelists, you know, they got the prize, maybe they did the most important work, maybe, because sometimes the committee gets it wrong, but even then, they're building on the, on the work of many, many other scientists, and that is absolutely true for the scientific method. And, and from my reading over the past few weeks about this, to present it to you guys, this guy really comes across, this, um, this uh, uh, Muslim scientist working in Cairo, Egypt, um, the physicist who had brilliant work on the early nature of light. This is, you know, 600 years pre-Newton. This guy really figured out a lot of things. And using the scientific method, and I have two quotes translated from Arabic or whatever language he spoke that just speaks to us today, so, uh, which is really, I think, quite remarkable. Truth is sought for its own sake. And those who are engaged upon the quest for anything for its own sake are not interested in other things. Finding the truth is difficult, and the road to it is rough. It's not a very elegant translation, but every scientist will tell you that is the core of what drives them. They want to know the truth, right? And they are driven to it, and it is not easy. If you're going to do something important in science, it is like prying a nut out of a very determined squirrel to not give you that nut. Right? I mean, it is really hard, and it keeps you up, and you're always filled with angst. And we'll, we'll get to this later as well. You never know if you're right. Never, ever know if you're completely positive you're right. So it is a hard thing. And here's something else. I just met this guy, and I love this guy. Right? And this is the beauty of science is that we are separated by a couple of thousand years here, and he is thinking exactly the way that I am and, and the other scientists in the room. The duty of the man who investigates the writing of scientists if learning the truth is his goal, I like that, if learning the truth is his goal, we can apply that to much of what's going on in the present administration, is to make himself an enemy of all that he reads. Make himself an enemy of all that he reads and attack it from every side. He should also suspect himself as he performs his critical examination of it so that he may avoid falling into either prejudice or leniency. So this core skepticism, which is at the heart of every really good scientist. This guy had this 2,000 years ago and was writing about it, right? And unfortunately, it did not catch on, right? There were other people who practiced the scientific method, but it took another 500 years for this guy, who, who really gets the credit for, for formalizing the, the scientific method, Francis Bacon. And interesting, so I think Bacon, I didn't read any of his original work. I'm not going to. I do have a lab that I have to run and another life to live. But reading about Bacon, and I get a lot of my information from Wikipedia, I'll just tell you. So I think that is a very reputable source. Uh, Bacon was like a lot of smart people we all know in the lab. He was really good at theory, but he was all thumbs. So he never could discover anything. Right? But he did come up with this, which is a fantastic thing, which is the scientific method. He formalized what people had been doing, but he wrote it down and discussed the philosophy of it, which is really important. And we, we tend to trivialize it. When is, the, when is it taught? What grade? My, my kids are older now. I think it's like fourth or fifth grade, young people. When do you start getting it? Fourth is another. There was a, he's already left. I had a young guy back here. Yeah, he's already bored, but I understand that. Yeah, so fourth or fifth grade, you start getting the scientific method. And because it's, you're so young and because it's so obvious, you tend to think it's, you know, it's obvious. But it isn't obvious. The scientific method is the key discovery of mankind, right? You make an observation. 
You then think about it. So you've got to think, got to think, right? It's not turning a crank. Human mind has got to be involved. You think of an interesting question, right? Huh, Dan discovered this, and this RNA does this, and I know that. So what if mm, this, right? So that's my hypothesis. I have an idea. Dan says this. I think I know that. I have an idea to put our two ideas together, and then I'm going to actually do an experiment. I'm not going to sit there and say, this should be, like Descartes would, I think, therefore it is. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm actually going to empirically test this idea by doing an experiment, doing an experiment and thinking about it critically. So I'm going to get the data. I'm eventually now, because of what we know, we're going to do statistics to try to prove to ourselves, and we'll go back to prove that this observation is real, right? And then we're going to take this, and we're not going to stop and say, I know everything now. We're going to say, okay, I think I know this, and I'm going to develop another theory, right? And we're just going to go around and around and around and around. And one of the most frustrating things to non-scientists who are not cut out for it, who come to a lab, is that you are never done. You're never done, right? The good thing in medicine is you have a patient, right? And they're really sick, and they live or they die, which is sad. But when they live, they go away. And you're done. Okay? Maybe they'll come back to you. But right, you're done. In science, you're never done. It's never over. Right? You're always working knowledge. We have ideas, we test, we test, we test, we test, we test. Sometimes we think we know something, we read a paper, and we go, oh crap. <laughs> I gotta start all over again because they just showed that what I thought was right is not right. Right? So again, we're willing to reconsider always what we think is true. Right? So what science is, the scientific method, it's the equivalent of giving man, you give a man a fish and he'll feed himself for a day. You teach a man how to fish and the, the real thing is you'll feed him for life. This is a joke. Uh, he'll systematically uh, scoop the oceans clean of, any, of anything edible, right? Wh which is also a downside of the scientific method. That's how powerful it is, right? Not only can we, can we feed ourselves forever, we can feed ourselves to the extent of destroying the oceans, right? Which, which does not speak against the scientific method. It actually speaks in favor of it, how powerful it is. Okay, and here's another website I found, Ex Urbe. Anyone know this? It's a professor at the University of Chicago. It's quite good. I won't read this whole thing to you. But she makes the point that Bacon came up with this scientific method. And the really smart people in Europe, they, they ran with this. They said, this is really cool. And, and governments were even willing to fund it. Okay? And basically, they were funding people to do it at a very low level compared to today. But, but rich people, governments, rudimentally funding, they were willing to wait a long time. You know, the scientific method was clear it was going to be useful, but it basically took 200 years, 200 years, for it to produce anything really useful for humanity. Okay? And that is another secret about science, is that you can make a great discovery, but actually applying it so it's useful can take a long time, a long time. I was a student, uh, when I was a graduate student, I wound up randomly in a lab that we made the first, what's known as a monoclonal antibody. So body makes lots of antibodies, have a monoclonal antibody, and it was clear that monoclonals were going to revolutionize medicine. Okay? It was absolutely obvious, even to me as a student. Okay? But it took 20 years for the first monoclonal to actually have a clinical impact, to be approved by the FDA and used on patients, right? 20 years. 20 years after that, half of all of the new drugs are monoclonal antibodies. 
So this is a discovery that everybody knew was going to be incredibly important for medicine, and that took 40 years. You have got to be patient. Patient, something politicians are not good at. Patience, right? Oh, why are we funding these people to, to, fund, to, to study fruit flies? Why? Because that's going to cure cancer and a zillion other diseases eventually, right? The knowledge we get. Okay, so here's the beauty of, of the scientific method, right? So this is what I'm talking about. So 2,400 years, nothing, 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 you know, a few things, and then boom, right? And this curve, the, the acceleration of this curve has not stopped, right? It basically, it keeps doubling, 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 and technology is just booming along now. We are still in the exponential phase of discovering things. You might think, oh, there's only a certain amount of nature to understand. And sooner or later, all of the low-hanging fruit will be taken. There is no evidence for that. Nature is incredibly complicated. Even the simplest things, like gravity, right? Very simple thing. We, the smartest people studying the simplest thing, they still don't know what gravity is, right? Someone just want to Nobel Prize for the graviton. We still don't really know what that is. Okay, now take everything else. Right? Including some basic problems in physics. We were talking about this at dinner last night. People don't actually understand how a bicycle stands up and is so easy to steer. That's a bicycle. It's just Newtonian physics. It's complicated enough that no one knows that. Now take something like the human body. Take something like one cell, which you have trillions of. Understanding how that single cell works, th this could take us thousands of years, at least, if ever. Okay, so here's the general case for science made by Richard Dawkins. If you base medicine on science, you cure people. If you base the design of planes on science, they fly. If you base the design of rockets on science, they reach the moon. It works, bitches. <laughs> OK, so that, that is the case. It works. And whatever people say against it, you cannot argue against that. Without the scientific method, we're still all in a cave, right? And there's not 7 billion of us. Maybe there's 700,000 of us or 7 million of us on this earth. The scientific method has enabled our being. And um, you know, you may have friends. You're all here. I assume you all like science. You probably have friends who think they hate science, who think technology is terrible, right? And we're destroying the world. And I'm not going to argue that there are downsides of technology. Of course that's true. Nothing is perfect. Everything has downsides. So something's not right. Um, if you go back, right, and you say, oh, let's live this life as a caveman, because that was a much better world. You lived to 30, and you died, and usually someone ate you, right? So there is no going back. There's no going back. And one of the problems is, this is uh, I started giving a talk like this for, for young scientists 15 years ago. When I started giving the talk, there were 6 billion people on the planet. And these days, there's 7.5 billion people on the planet. And if we're going to maintain the population that we have, we have no choice. We cannot abandon science. If we abandon science, we abandon 7 billion people to die. Yes, we have huge problems technology has helped create. The way out is not by throwing away science. The way out is to figure out how to do science better, better. So science is more and more important every day. Okay, how do you tell a real scientist from someone pretending to be a scientist? So this is Einstein. No amount of experimentation can ever prove me right. A single experiment can prove me wrong. Scientists never think they prove something. 
We never use the prove word if we've properly been trained because we can't prove anything except if we're mathematicians. Then we can make a proof. So what we scientists do is to prove that our observations that we make experimentally are statistically likely to be accurate. Right? That's what we do every day in the lab. And here's something to think about, particularly if you're going to be a scientist, is that nature is essentially unknowable in any definite way. If you want definitive proof of something, you should be a real priest of a real religion. Okay? Because only they can know something where it's proven. Where humans have created this whole thing, and then in that system, it's logically consistent. So religion is like mathematics, something created by humans where you can prove things. If we want to look at the natural world, we can't prove anything. Remember, we didn't create the natural world. It made us. Right? It made us. What are the odds it made a brain smart enough to understand everything about the thing that created the brain? Uh, we'll probably differ in opinion on this. I think the odds of that are zero. Right? So I do not think humanity is capable of understanding everything which is one of the reasons I'm so optimistic that they will never run out of a job for being a scientist. Right? We're just not smart enough to run out of that job. Okay, and something else. You'll find things on the internet. You may even find defined textbooks that you'll be reading if you're not a scientist. Many of us in the audience have written chapters of these textbooks. We can tell you, don't believe them. Right? When you write a textbook, you are the world's expert in something, and so you do know something about it. But every sentence you write, you think, oh, gosh, that's true for this, but not for that. And then you get to some things you're not that familiar with, and you start reading other people's papers, and you hold your nose, and you write down what everyone thinks is the truth. Okay? So what textbooks are are guidebooks, our best knowledge at the time, what we think is going on. No scientist reads the textbooks like it's a Bible. We don't have Bibles. right? We have things that are the works of humans that are imperfect. And something you always have to remember as a scientist is that interpretations are always subject to modification, and nearly all interpretations will be eventually modified. Your, your whole life as a scientist, you, you hope to put bricks in the wall of knowledge that other people don't have to take out completely. Right? And at the best case scenario is the brick still stays in, but we've got to mend the edges of it. Right? Put the mortar in a little more tightly to make sure that brick is really just perfect. Scientists are professional skeptics. That's what we really are at our core, professional skeptics. We are always questioning our assumptions. And whose job is it to, to, to decide whether we're right in the end? Our colleagues can help us, but it is our job to disprove our most cherished models and ideas. That is the job of a scientist. Right? Think of someone else in society who has a job like that. Okay, is it someone who runs a big company to prove their product is useless? Right? It should be a politician, right, to show that something we're doing is not useful, but it tends not to be. This pretty much falls on scientists, right? We are professional skeptics. So during my sabbatical, I did a lot of wandering, which was fun, and uh, a lot of trips to London, only 50 minutes away on the train, and I found this. Uh, Neil's Yard is just a place mm, downtown London. At the heart of science is an essential balance between two seemingly contradictory attitudes. An openness to new ideas, no matter how bizarre or counterintuitive they may be, and the most ruthless, skeptical scrutiny of all ideas, old and new. 
This is how deep truths are winnowed from deep nonsense. Carl Sagan. This is at the heart of science, this duality, duality, right? At the same time, I'm open to new things, but I'm deeply skeptical of them. F. Scott Fitzgerald, the mark of a first-rate mind is the ability to hold two contradictory thoughts in your brain at the same time and, not, and still be able to function. Okay? That is the essence of being a good scientist, open, skeptical, simultaneously. Okay, now, caution, caution. Eh, eh. Skepticism is easily misplaced. Right? Um, uh, this is carbon dating. It's a, a, a cartoon column. I don't know. As a journalist, aren't you supposed to cover both sides? The media's false dichotomy is part of the problem. Maybe a fair system would be to allow media, a lot of media coverage in proportion to actual scientific evidence. But here's a blog article, right? So th that's a problem. If you're skeptical of everything, you can easily show that the other side, you could be skeptical of it, even though there's overwhelming evidence. Right? So I'm going to talk about three examples. Uh, one is climate change. Right? Is there proof that humans are causing climate change? No, there's not proof. Remember what I told you three minutes ago? We can't prove anything. So a good scientist will never get on CNN and say, we have proven that they won't. They'll say, there's a preponderance of evidence. What is the preponderance of evidence? It's like 95% of climate scientists believe in this. So can Fox News five 5% of climate scientists who don't? Yeah, they can. So what are you supposed to do as a citizen? Well, I'm sorry. In the end, you have to trust the preponderance of experts. right? You don't have the time to go in and, and figure out climate science. I can't do that. right? I'm not a physicist. And even if I was, I'm not a climate physicist. You're going to, at some point, have to trust experts. And this is a big problem in society. We can have experts, and no one trusts them. We can have a debate on vaccines, what I'll get to. And Jenny McCarthy, who's an actress, she has a bigger say in this than I do, even though I spent my whole life working on viruses and the immune response. And you, as a general person, Jenny McCarthy, John Udell, I'm going with Jenny. You're a lot better looking. Probably presents herself a lot better, too, right? So that's one case. Here's something even more egregious. Climate change, 95.5. Mm, uh, creationism, right? Creationism. Uh, creationism, 999 to 1, I would say, and maybe even higher. So the, we, because we're scientists, we call it a theory of evolution, right? Because it's still a theory. Uh, but I'll, let me just tell you, biology can only be understood in terms of evolution. You can't be a biologist and not think about evolution. It is supported by an absolutely overwhelming amount of evidence. Overwhelming. Th there is no other story. There's nothing else that's plausible, actually. So if it's going to be the scientific method, we have to have a competing plausible theory. There's nothing else that's plausible, okay, to any reasonable scientist. And if you're still skeptical, and remember, I encourage you to be skeptical, because you should be, Come to my lab in, in Washington. It's not that far a drive, right? I'll, I'll take you to lunch. D.C., D.C., Washington, D.C. Yes, good, good question. Uh, uh, I will show you viral evolution in one day, okay? I'll take my flu virus. I'll put it under a condition that selects for an escape mutant, and this will happen actually in a few hours in my lab, right? And I will prove it to you by sequencing the RNA. Okay, so that is evolution happening in my lab every day, and evolution is going on in all your bodies 
every second of your life, if nothing else, from all the bacteria that are in your gut and your skin. Every time you eat a different food, take a different drug, go to sleep even, your microbiome is evolving. Okay? This is a fact of biology. It is not in doubt. Okay, so the worst of the skeptics, because these, these guys do the most harm, are, are the people who, who question the, the validity and the utility of a vaccine. Okay? The anti-vaxxers. Uh, at best, they are sincere people, and I think many of them are, at best, but they are completely misguided. At worst, and there are people like this, they are avaricious, predatory con artists who make money on selling you something that is not the vaccine. Uh, and here's something. Real scientists question their beliefs and rely on evidence. So look at this. We have a flu vaccine. We have one for kids that, in theory, should be better because it's made in a better way. But it started not working. Okay? And so we're scientists. And we didn't just say to people, oh, no, no, it works. It works. I'm not going to lie to you. When it doesn't work, we have evidence that it's not working. We test the evidence. And then we say, okay, we're not going to use the vaccine this year, guys, because the evidence says it's not working. That's what a true scientist does. They don't lie. They don't make a politically expedient statement. They have the truth, and they give you the truth. Okay? Vaccines are not perfect. They are not. Okay? Everything you put into a human body has side effects, without an exception. But they are close to perfect. They have saved more lives than all other medical interventions combined. Smallpox alone, one virus that we have eradicated, which is perhaps the greatest achievement of modern medicine, killed 400 million people in the 20th century alone. 400 million people. Eradicated by 1980. How many million people died since then? Anyone from the audience? Zero million people. Zero million people. So you think that vaccine works? I think so. Right? Uh, they have by far the highest benefit risk ratio of any medical intervention. Medicine is fantastic. Many of you are on drugs. There's not a single drug you take. I t I'm on three drugs, three medications, right? Not a single medication you take that does not have side effects. Vaccines are no exception. They have side effects. The benefit, however, is so much greater than the risk. There's nothing else in medicine like it, right? And most important thing, if you have kids or grandchildren or friends who have kids, have the kids vaccinated. There's no qualification here, right? Vaccines save lives. And if you do not have your children vaccinated, you are irresponsible as a parent, and I'm not going to water that down, okay? It's almost criminal to me if you don't have your kids vaccinated because there's something we know that works, right? It is your job to have your kids vaccinated. Something else about the scientific method, it isn't just about science. It's about using evidence to, to make rational decisions. And there is, it's, it's no coincidence that the scientific method was formulated when the um, um, Enlightenment was occurring in Europe and people were thinking about the best way to govern themselves. So our own constitution, one of the greatest political documents ever written, if not the greatest, is based basically on applying the scientific method to politics. Right? So this is not just the basis of science. It is the basis of a reasonably governed society. It's at the heart of everything, scientific method. Right? And as a scientist, you have to have a passion for it. Okay, so here's a high priest of scientific methodism. Everybody needs to be educated in the scientific method, whether you're a scientist or not, because it's at the heart of society. 
right? And we do a bad job in this country when we let people be educated without this appreciation. We're failing at some basic level in science education because teaching the scientific method at its heart also teaches people to think rationally. And if we don't have rational uh, people who vote, we cannot possibly have a rational government. It's not, not possible, right? So we have to do a better job in education. Uh, okay. But to become a true priest of the scientific method, you will need a PhD, right, or a doctoral degree, or equivalent experience. So that's going to be the rest of the talk. Okay, so just cutting to the chase, actually. What is the most important job of a scientist? Now, this took me a long time to appreciate this. Only in my mid-50s did I finally get this. What is my most important job? Is it to make discoveries that I love, that I always thought was my most important job? It is not. Because I just told you, my discoveries may be wrong. Some bright young person will come along tomorrow or 20 years from now and look at my old papers and go, oh, that stuff is all wrong because of this that he didn't know. Okay, so I hope to put bricks in the wall, but maybe someone's going to pull them out. But here's my most important job, is to train the people who can properly pull the bricks out of the wall. So the most important job that I have, or Dan, or all the scientists in the room, is to train the next generation of scientists. It is actually far better to do science right and get the wrong answer than do science wrong and get the right answer. Because at the end of the day, science is self-correcting if people do it properly. And once we destroy that link, once we blow out that flame, we've lost everything. Right? So the most important thing is to train the next generation of priests. That is the most important job that we all have, to make sure that they can train the next generation and so on. And I, I use the torch as a, as a very appropriate metaphor. Right? People may be thinking, well, science is never going to go away. Uh, really? Really? Never going to go away? Let's take a country that was leading the world in everything, culturally, scientifically, without question, in the 1920s. Wh who would that country be? Uh, it would be Germany. And what happened? One election by a leader elected with less than a, um, a majority, and Germany just forgot about the scientific method. Right? So you think that can't happen here? Huh? Huh? Enough said. OK, so the key to being a scientist, for you young people out there, or if you're just starting, you become an expert in something you are passionately interested in. And this passion is part of the scientist fiber. Okay, so I'm going to tell you one path to science, which, which was my own, right? So the game of life, you guys remember this when we were kids, right? This old game, I used to play it. And it's been updated now, I can see, inside out, but still the same game. So what happened to me? Was, was, I, did I born being, was I born knowing I was going to be a viral immunologist? I, I was not. When I was 12 years old, right around puberty, uh, I don't think it was a coincidence, I got interested in the human body, right? And I never forget it. I was in a bookstore, and there was this book called The Human Body. And I opened it up, and I was looking for things, but right. Uh, but then I saw these diagrams. I was like, whoa, boy, is that cool. That, that's what's in there? You know, I just thought, wow, that's what we are? And I just, at that point, I want to be an MD. I really want to be a doctor. And I had this, I use this comic book on purpose, because I had this very infantile view of what an MD actually did and what I would be. And, it was a childish view. And it was encouraged, but it's actually a very nice book by this guy, Gerald Green. It was a movie, The Last Angry Man. This was a, a general practitioner in Brooklyn, which was near where I grew up. Uh, and, and 
he wasn't making any money and he took care of poor people. And so from age 12, when I read this book and the, the, the anatomy book, I wanted to be a general practitioner. That was my goal, right? Goal. My parents knew I was completely unsuited for this because of my personality, among other things. And they would tell me, you know, John, maybe you should reconsider. But I, I did have that passion, right? I've always been passionate. So I, I went to Princeton. I was lucky enough to get in. My, my, my high school record was mixed, but I had the right phenotype. If I wasn't interested in something, I didn't care. But if I was interested in something, I got obsessed. And that's what it really takes to be a scientist. And that's a really good marker when you're looking for kids to take in your own lab. Someone who, they're not going to do what people tell them necessarily. But then they get interested in something, it's like, bam, the light goes on. And I was like that. So I'm at Princeton. I'm a pre-med. I'm extremely competitive because it was like now, it was really hard to get into medical school. And, you know, there were all these barriers in my way. I took all these science courses that I wasn't all that interested in. But to graduate from Princeton, you had to do an honors thesis. You, ha you had to. It wasn't optional. So I was in a lab. I had to be. I just got really lucky. I wound up working with a guy who scientists will know what this is, discovered P53. His name was Aaron Levine. It was a fantastic lab. I had mentors in the lab from uh, uh, one of the postdocs, and one of the graduate students in the lab is Art Levinson, who became the CEO of Genentech. I mean, it was just lucky. All the good things in my life have just been pure luck, basically, right? And I'll admit, who, who you marry, getting into what school, winding up in this lab. And I fell in love with research. Right? And you never forget it. You do your first experiment, you're alone in a lab late at night, and everything I did as an undergrad was all an artifact. Right? Everything was wrong. There were no bricks I put in any wall. The bricks I was dropping on my feet. Okay? So there were no bricks. But you think you made a discovery, which is good enough. So there you are, you know, it's 10 o'clock at night, all your roommates are out drinking beer, you're, you're in the lab, and you get your data. Oh my God, I, I know something now. No other human being ever knew before me. That, that, that's the hook. That's the hook that gets most scientists. This, this thrill of, of making a discovery. Okay? So I didn't make any discoveries. But I was a really good student. And that's a letter that I still have that I've reprinted here from Arnie, my boss, saying, you know, John, if you, want to be a, uh, if you wanted to be a scientist and not an MD, you'd make a first-rate scientist, in my, my opinion. And that changed my life. You have someone you respect who, who, who boosts you and says, you're talented, you can change that person's life. Right? And I encourage you to do that. When you see good people around you, do not be shy about what you think of them. If they're really good, tell them, because you can change their life. And that changed my life. Because I got to Penn, Penn Medical School. I was a good student at Princeton. I studied really, really hard. Arnie had gone to Penn as a PhD student, and he helped me get in. Uh, Penn likes to take some people like me who probably weren't going to be great MDs. And I got to Penn, and then I realized my childhood dream of being an MD was just a childhood dream. Because I thought medicine was going to be like science, and it is not like science. Okay? It is like, it's like an army, only even more formal, right? And as a medical student, you are lower than these guys, right? And I do not like people telling me what to do. And I'm not telling you that's bad in medicine, that people tell you what to do. I'd say that's really good, because if you don't do that, people will die, you know? But on the other hand, if you're a really curious people, medicine is not necessarily the place for you, right? Because questioning everything is not something you can do in medicine, and certainly not have a career very easily. Right? So here's a, just one of the things I'll show you. This is a funny thing, the 12 types of medical students. I'm not going to read through all of these for you. So who was I? I was the missing. 
<laughs> I was the missing because I hated medicine right from the get-go. I did not like the doctors. I didn't li like the regimentation. I loved the basic science. But year one, I got all the stuff about what we're made of and how it all works, and I was very satisfied. Years two and three, because I got into the MD-PhD program, was stuff I was not interested in. So I basically did the bare minimum. And I spent all my time here at the Wistar Institute because Penn kept a couple of places open every year for kids who wanted to do a PhD after they had gotten to medical school, right? And I had a nice letter from Arnie, who had gone there, and they let me in, and I became a graduate student. And I fell head over heels in love with science as a graduate student. And so I spent all my time in the lab. Um, these cartoons are actually in my book by a guy named Alex Dent, who's at the um, University of, of Indiana. And they're really good, the, the 12 tribes of graduate students. So uh, no one is any one of these people. I was a mixture of eager beaver, science is cool, I want a nature paper, and career-minded. I was serious and really enthusiastic. I, I really love science. And to, to be honest, I, I, it was also, I was really good at it, right? So that's something else. It, to be successful in life about something, you should have a passion in it, but then you need to be talented because everything that's interesting and fun is competitive. And, and there are some people who love it, but they're just not that good at it. So that's something you probably have to figure out for yourself. Am I good enough at this thing to have a career? Okay? And I was. I mean, I just was good. It was just natural to me. Stuff that was hard for other people was easy for me. And medical school was the opposite. And I, you know, so I was really good at science, and I was really bad at medicine. I mean, I was the worst out of 164 students in the class. And, and that was valuable, too. It's good to be bad at things, right? It's good to fail because it teaches you what success is and that you're not God's gift to humanity. You're good at some things and not good at others, and it gives you empathy for other people who aren't good at everything either, right? So failing at things is, is fine, right? I have, a daily, I have a weekly reminder. I play jazz. I'm not very good. The other guys are much better, but they let me play with them, and I love it, and every week I, I say, you suck, you suck. Okay, I can live with that. It's quite good. Okay, so then I was a postdoc for just one year because this was a different era in 1982. Graduated from Princeton in 75, medical school in 81, was a postdoc in Imperial College, and living overseas for a year is great. I, I recommend this for uh, people doing postdocs. It could be really a great experience. I worked with another fantastic young guy. It was, it was great. Here, here are the nine types of postdoctoral fellows. Uh, I don't really fit into any of these, but they're, they're quite good. The cartoons are great from Alex. Okay, so then I kind of made a mistake. Uh, I went back to Wistar as an assistant professor. The science was good, but if you go back to where you trained, they typically treat you like a graduate student, like you were, right? So they weren't treating me very well. I had an R01 for people in the know, but didn't have any lab space and just was getting screwed. And I had a chance to go to NIH. One of our collaborators was there, and NIH is a fantastic place, the National Institutes of Health, just outside of Washington, Bethesda. This was dedicated in 1940 by, by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and this movie is actually online as a YouTube video, okay? So if you YouTube Franklin Roosevelt, NIH, um, you will find Roosevelt dedicating NIH. And to me, the National Institute of Health stands for the very finest things in America, right? This was dedicated to help the, the health of all humanity, not just Americans, right? America at its very best. And it started small, and, and now it's quite large. Um, it's um, 20 different institutes, basically 20-plus little universities, more than 8,000 people. And I've been there for 30 years, um, and I've been a, you know, had my own lab there, and it, it, it's been fantastic. 
right? And I, I don't really fall into any of these either. Mm, kind of laid back, demigod, and big talker, I guess, if I had to pick. And not the other ones, right? But not really any of those. And most of us are not in any one of these categories, right? So th that was my career. That's how I got into it. A bunch of random steps, basically, until I found that I was a fish in water and then I could swim. And that's what it's like for a lot of people. You don't have to be 12 and know you want to be a, a, someone who studies nuclear transport of mRNAs, okay? You, you can come to it that way. A lot of good scientists do, but there are other ways in as well. And for some kids, Maybe they get all the way through college until senior year and then a light goes on. Uh, that's what happened to my son, who's a very good scientist as a postdoc. He was, he was okay. Uh, in high school, he was kind of a meathead, good-looking kid, good athlete, smart, but never really applied himself. Went to uh, Colgate, where he had a fantastic education, got to work in a lab with a great mentor, and bam, light goes on, science. Right? So uh, everyone has a different path. You talk to the, the PIs at Ohio State, and I encourage the students to talk to the, your mentors about what their careers were like and other people and find out how they got into science. They're really fun stories. Okay, so I don't have a lot of time left, but uh, you can stop me whenever, Dan, because I can go on for a long time here. So uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the actual practicalities of being a scientist. So science is great, and you can see I'm optimistic, but, you know, it's not perfect. And as a career, it's a rough career now, and I don't want to mislead young people. So. When I was starting in science, and when Dan was, if you went to a good school and you were good at it, you were guaranteed, if you're not completely psychotic, and I mean completely, that you're going to get your own lab, at least have a chance of running a research group. And, and that has changed over the last 40 years, right? These days, that's not enough to do everything right, and that's a big problem. Because we can't ask people to make the enormous financial sacrifices you have to make to go into science unless there's some guarantee at the other end that we're going to at least have a job for them that they want to do. So that really has changed, and that's how this talk came about 20 years ago. I started worrying about the career of young scientists. Okay, it, it's just become, it, you know, it's harder than, than, game, than Lord of the Rings. I mean, it's a really hard career to wind up dropping the ring in and retire after having 50 years as a career. This is a hard thing to do. So uh, just to tell you, it is not worth it unless you love science. Okay, you, you have to love science. This will skip. I mentioned some of it. Um, a good quote from Freud, the state of mind which enables a man to do work of this kind is akin to that of a religious worshiper or the lover. The daily effort comes from no deliberate intention or program, but straight from the heart. You've you got to love it. You've really got to love it. You've got to love being in the lab, working at it, right? You just, you just do. And science, if you're going to do it, it it's got to be fun. Right? The, the labs that do the best work that are the most creative are labs where people are having fun. It really is. When it's done right, it is an incredibly fun career. You're surrounded by people just like you who are into science, and you come to work every day, and the goal is to leave that day thinking about something else and what you came in for because you learned something. And you're all in this together. Right? It's an amazing thing. And it looks like it's an individual sport, but it is not. It is the most team sport ever invented. It is an incredible communal exercise, and what we are, despite whatever the dean is telling the people, this person's special, that person's special, that's not right. We are all basically ants in the international scientific community. All of us come to work every day to make discoveries to share with humanity. And that's true of the chairman of the department to the, the, to the undergraduate working that lab. We're all doing that job. 
from all over the world, and that is an amazing thing. You go into labs, almost any university in the world, there are people from all over the world. It is Star Trek in real life, right? People from all over. T tell me another career like that. And not only that, once you start running a lab, have people come from all over the world, you can go all over the world and get off an airplane and have your former postdoc or student meet you or your colleague who works on the same thing and you're already friends because you've been reading each other's papers. Right? It's an amazing thing. And it actually is a force for world peace and understanding. Right? It is a fantastic thing that we have people coming all over from the world to work in America and then go back to their own countries. Because then we have crazy things going on in America. They can tell all their friends, yeah, America. Not everyone is like this guy. There's some really nice people there, believe me. Okay, I've worked there. It's, it's a great place. Okay, so how to make discoveries if you're really embarking? Cross-pollination between fields pays huge dividends. Knowledge in one field, take it to another field, you can often make great discoveries, so you want to be the B. Want to be the B, right? That's just some ways to do it. We'll go through that. You guys recognize him, Tao Pan. TRNA guy, best paper from my lab ever. Collaboration between me, viral immunologist, Tao Pan, RNA biologist. Our two minds together, one plus one, 11. That's the way it works in science. Two different things, work on the same problem, you're gonna make new discoveries. Okay, so just something that may be surprising to the non-scientist. You don't have to know everything before you do an experiment. Sometimes knowing too much is bad because the stuff you know is wrong, okay? So here's the key to biology. It's not like physics where you can sit down and, and figure out how things work with a pen and paper. To make a discovery in biology, you actually have to do an experiment. You have to do an experiment. You can't just sit there and read everything and theoretize what it is. You have to get your hands, get off your chair, go to the bench, and do some hard work. Okay? There is an exception. If you're a bioinformaticist, then you don't have to do any experiments. Uh, but someone else does, right? My lab does, so someone has to do an experiment. Okay, so here's a, a case study. So you're a graduate student, and you have this great idea, right? You're going home at night, you're cycling back through the campus, and oh, man, what if we did this? So you can't wait to get in the next day, talk to your mentor, you walk in her office, and, and you're really excited, and so she's got a big smile on her face, because we love it when the people in our lab are excited, because that is our job, is to keep them enthused, right? That is actually our main job. Um, and you're explaining your idea to her, and the smile goes neutral, and then for the next hour, she politely tells you, this is not going to work, and even if it does, it's going to be uninterpretable. Okay? Now, if you're a good student, and this happens to you, you will leave my office, and you'll think about it. And if you're a really good student, you'll think, man, John is getting old. You know? <laughs> eh, 30 years ago, maybe he was smart, but, hmm. I think he's lost it, like he forgot the stuff he told me last week. So I think I'm going to do the experiment anyway. Okay? So my advice is, if you're really keen on doing an experiment, is just do the experiment. Be because the best students, sorry, went too fast. Uh, if you search the internet for pain in the ass, this to me is the funniest slide. The, the best students, they're pain in the ass. They will not listen to you. Okay? And that is the way it should be. Remember I told you why I went into science instead of medicine? In medicine, people tell you what to do. In science, they, they shouldn't. And if they do, you're not, and you listen, you're not suited for it. So if you're going to run your own lab one day and make independent discoveries, what do you think? At some point, um, you're going to be walking home from the bar, and a fairy is going to fly over your head and sprinkle you with dust, and poof, now you're a PI, running your own lab, and you have your own ideas. 
It doesn't work like that. If you're going to be a scientist, from day one, you take responsibility for your own research and you believe in your own ideas. Okay? And if you keep doing this, sooner or later, you'll have the great experience that most of us have had of walking into the boss's office with your notebook open to that experiment that he told you not to do, and you're going to have a shit-eating grin on your face, and I'm going to know why you're there, and I'm actually really happy. Why am I happy? A, I know you've made a discovery, and B, really why? Because you are uh, the first step into becoming an independent scientist. You are thinking for yourself, and you are not listening to me or anybody else if you think you have a good idea. That is how you become a scientist. You ignore what everybody else thinks, okay, and you pursue what you think is true. Okay, now there are boundaries to that statement, okay, that we can discuss during the reception. Okay, um, okay, I got a few more minutes, huh? Yeah, yeah, okay. So, how to make discoveries, interpreting your data is critical, right? It isn't simple. It looks like it's just a wheel, this, this scientific method. It is not a wheel. Where the creativity often comes into play is not in the hypothesis, it's seeing in the data what no one else sees. Very often, six labs will do the same experiment. One lab makes a great discovery. Because where a lot of the creativity is seeing the data, what the possibilities are. And that is the time to really start thinking, right? And it's really fun to do this as a group, as a group. Get together. What is the most interesting thing this could possibly be? Okay? That, that's really fun. Encourage young scientists to think big, big picture. Why are we doing this? Why is it important? How does it apply to all of biology? But I also want you to have big ambitions. And when that apple hits you and you think gravity, I don't want you to be too afraid to say, I have discovered something important. I've seen this in my own lab. Right? People do everything right. Great idea, great experiment, great interpretation, really cool answer. Ooh, who am I to have discovered something so important? No, you cannot have that attitude. You've got to have the attitude, I can make a great discovery. Many of your best discoveries will not be what you expected, right? So if you're looking for one thing, you find something else, right? And that's fine. I mean, it's really fine to start pursuing something else if it's a really interesting, right? So in general, I would encourage you to embrace serendipity. This is past your, oh, man, the, the scientist who exploited serendipity like nobody you can believe. This is the actual quotation in French that chance favors the prepared mind. If you're ever in Paris, go to the Pasteur Institute, uh, make sure the museum is open, it's got a very limited schedule, and you can go in and see the original apparatus that, that Pasteur used. It is, tears are in my eyes. Th this guy was an amazingly good scientist, and if you're a young scientist, I urge you to read something about Louis Pasteur, how smart he was. Okay, this will skip. That will skip, that too, that too. This too, although it's a funny one. Be organized, yeah, crap, was that today? That's why there are no dinosaurs on Earth. Okay, so this is a completely hypocritical mind slide because I am the dinosaur who missed the boat because I am completely disorganized. Uh, yeah, this is obvious to other people. That was skip. Okay, so what does it take to be a scientist? You really got to work hard. 50 hours is a minimal, right? And this is not a joke. What else do you have to do? It's young people who aren't married, they don't have kids, no one says it's easy, they make no money, but your attitude as a young scientist should be, oh my God, someone's paying me to do this, I can't believe it. This is so much fun. I want to spend 100 hours a week in the lab. 
right? And, 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 and if you don't want to do that, we have a word for you. It's called normal. You're a normal person, right? Science takes obsessed people. That's what it takes, right? And it, again, it cannot feel like work, right? And there's just no substitute for hard work. And uh, probably end on this slide. So this is putting things quantitative because I'm a scientist. This is production. This is actually a unit I came up with, which is millipapers per week, right? Millipapers per week. Uh, so hours spent in the lab at 10 hours a week. Do you see that green dot? You're actually negatively productive because you're wasting everybody's time. So the lab suffers by having you there. At 20 hours a week, now it's neutral. 30, 40, it's not linear. It's a logarithmic curve until we get to past 80, and then you're psychotic. And the lab, again, will suffer until we get rid of you and get mental health for you. Right? So the curve basically looks like this. Until you get to 80 hours a week, you're basically in the logarithmic part. And why is that? Well, you are working harder, but it also means you're obsessed, which is part of it. Your brain is always thinking about what's going on. You go for a run. The ideas keep bubbling up. We were just talking about that at lunch. Where, where do your ideas come from? Because you're obsessed, you never know. You go out walking, you, you run your dogs, an idea bubbles into your brain, right? That's just the way it works when you're a scientist. Okay, so time's up, and we'll end there. Um, this is just encouraging. If you go do a postdoc, make sure that other people coming from that lab actually haven't suffered this fate, which can happen. Uh, and then um, maybe I should just end this, okay? So... I spent the second half talking about the only way to be successful is to run your own lab, and that is not true. So no longer the dirty little secret of science. Most graduate students, they will never be principal investigators. They will not have their own lab. What is the number? According to NIH, it's 14%. According to what I can gather, it's probably closer to 7% of graduate students will eventually run their own lab. So literally, the alternative career is being a PI. And we should no longer say alternative careers. The most alternative career there is statistically is being a, a PI yourself. Right? So there are many things you can do with your PhD. The, I gave this talk at Hershey, Pennsylvania a number of years ago. They challenged me to come up with a list, which I sent to them afterwards. That, that's a joke. That's a joke. Th there's a lot of things you can do with a, with a, uh, with a um, PhD. The good news is that PhD training provides skills that will translate to many interesting, good-paying jobs thinking logically and critically, writing, speaking. In case you're wondering, you don't have to be in your 20s to start a PhD. I was really surprised with this. Uh, this was just in Nature last week. 6% of PhD recipients in, in life sciences are older than 45. So something like 15% start their PhDs after 40. You can do it. That's the beauty of being an American. You can always reinvent yourself. It will be painful. And I will end on, uh, on, on this thought. Scientists have an important role to play in society and the political process. If we don't preach the gospel of the scientific method, nobody will. So that's on us. Uh, education begins in the local schools. Uh, and then we're going to have to make science a more attractive career. Um, advantages of becoming a life scientist, saving the world, yes. You get a free degree, true. Uh, freedom, you can show the world how smart you are. There's a never-ending challenge. The learning never stops. See the world. So you can join the Navy, become a scientist. Uh, and friendship. So that's it. Thank you, John. We have time for probably two questions from young people in the audience, and I'd ask that the uh, people over 18 uh, hold your questions to talk with Dr. Udell at the reception upstairs. So do we have some young people with some questions? Yeah. 
to your everyday life? Everyday work or life? Work, well, work, it's everything, right? We're in the lab, we're doing experiments, and every experiment is applying the scientific method, every single one, right? So what do scientists do all day, right? Uh, sometimes they actually sit at the bench and do experiments, but then a lot of the time is actually analyzing the data because these days you do experiments, you get lots of data. Sometimes you get enough data, it takes you a month to analyze the experiment, and that is all part of the scientific method, going through the data. And then what do we do? We criticize each other. So you take your data and you come to my office or, you, or one of your colleagues next to you and you go, here's what I discovered and this is what I think. And they start criticizing you. Well, how do you know this? How do you know that? How do you know this? How do you know that? Did you think of this? Did you think of that? Did you think of this? Right? These are called controls, right? Did you do this control, that control? And the way we say it, control looks like a very obvious thing. You know? It's a way of making sure you're right. But the controls are never obvious. They're really subtle. And that's where a lot of creativity comes in. So the scientific method, again, it's not just this crank. We don't just put meat in and get hamburger out, right? Logically, we do that. But it's thinking, 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 right? That being said, if the data are wrong, all the thoughts are wasted, OK? So we think a lot on how to do the experiment the best way possible. And then when we do the experiment, this is not easy. Doing an experiment is like learning how to be an elite athlete. Okay? It, it actually is an athletic event, but the actors are your fingers. Okay? And you have things you manipulate, like pipettes and tubes. And uh, it's a very involved process. So it looks easy to be a scientist. It is not easy. Okay? It is not easy. Uh, people who do it are extremely dedicated. Can you be a scientist? Maybe. Maybe. You're, you're, you know, if you're a smart kid, the brain is there, and then do you have a talent for it? Come to a lab and find out, right? And the, the good thing today is kids now are amazingly sophisticated in high school sometimes. They can start working in a lab at a local university, and you see high school kids who blow your mind, okay? Blow your mind. They ask, and here's what I thought. I was in New York giving a seminar, and New York's got all these talented kids at these magnet schools. And I realized what they should do is that every laboratory in New York City should have one student assigned for them from Bronx School of Science or Stuyvesant or the other elite schools to ask questions. Because sometimes the best questions are asked by 15-year-olds, right, who are smart, but they don't know anything. And so they see the emperor when they have no clothes. Okay, so can you use a scientific method? You can, right? Once you're old enough to do mathematics, you can, you can use a scientific method. So, okay, last question. No, you don't. Isn't that funny? So they make us take all this math, right? And in my generation anyway, we hardly ever use it. But here's the thing. Your, their generation, the young scientists, and your generation, because the amount of information we're getting is so huge now, math is becoming more and more important again. So you have to, the real answer to your question is, yes, you have to pay attention to mathematics. Yeah. Yeah. On that yeah. note, yeah. and I agree with John, yeah, you better study math. Better study so, math. Hey, please join me in thanking John Udell. And join. <laughs> and, and please come upstairs to the reception with, and bring your questions. <laughs>